My name is Tiny French Pancakes, and welcome to Planet of the Crepes. And I'm the anthropomorphic flaming hot Cheeto hot dog. <laughs> it's not, I feel like it's not a, a truly uh, Japanese snack unless the hot dog is cut and shaped into a tiny octopus character. Using like hot dog origami? That's a great band name, hot dog origami. I, I, I just want to say that the flaming hot Cheeto hot dog is a real thing. And it's the most American thing I've ever seen. It's the size of New York. It's it's a travesty against food. Planet of the Meerkats. Welcome to Planet of the Meerkats, episode three. Dave, tell us what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about Japan. And uh, why are we talking about Japan? Because Japan's crazy awesome. Well, and, you know, just, just to go beyond that... Um, you know, they have a Japan for being a relatively small country has a huge cultural impact on the world. Pikachu a few years ago was determined to be a more recognizable character in the world than Mickey Mouse, which just kind of blows me away. I remember when Pokemon cards came out, I'm like, what the hell are these little things? Like, what a, what a, what a joke, but they're so popular. You mean Pokemon? Pokemon. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Dave likes to correct my pronunciation of Pokemon. Me, of course, being a, a Pokemon expert. <laughs> Never actually played with Pokemon or watched Pokemon. Neither have I. I did enjoy the Detective Pikachu movie, though. Is is that the one that had, like, Ryan Reynolds in it or something? <laughs> it is. <laughs> nice. <laughs> it was Pokemon or Pikachu walking around talking like Deadpool, drinking coffee. I was reading a um, an article about Chris Pine last night. You know, it was one of those ongoing Battle of the Chris articles, which I feel like is is so like early 2010s, but somehow we still have articles about all the Hollywood Chris's. But I agree. I think Chris Pine is is the best one. But in my mind, for some reason, I kept thinking of Ryan Reynolds in this conversation. <laughs> like he feels like spiritually he's a Chris, although he's not. Yeah, we should include him in, in the kiss, in the kiss. In the, <laughs> we should include Ryan Reynolds in the, the Chris bestiary. Ryan, quote unquote, Chris Reynolds. So yeah, we're talking about Japan today, and um, I have been to Japan, and Dave has not. Dave should go to Japan because he would love it. I totally want to go to Japan. I'm a little bit scared of like actual real Japanese food. Everything I've had here, I'm sure, is like watered down Americanized versions of it. It might try and kill me. I don't know, but I, I would love to go. Neil, can you tell tell me about what was your time in Japan like? Well, there was a lot of food for sure. I mean, I think I think the I, what I would say is like one of the things about Japan that I found the most surprising was the was the language barrier. Um, I've been to a lot of places around the world and always felt like I could communicate with people really well. And most people spoke English. Like we were in my wife and I a few years ago were in Kenya and we were in the the Masai Mara and tons of people spoke English. Uh, but in Japan, it, it seemed like few and far between. Um, so that was definitely something that was challenging. You know, another thing that I think was surprising was just that I, I felt very aware of like the superficial things that I knew of Japan from movies and culture. So there was like a, a total lack of surprise at like the surface level stuff that you encounter, you know, the stereotypes of a country, I think, you know, obviously come from somewhere. So you, you kind of recognize that stuff and it's, it's familiar. But like on the flip side of that, I found myself like woefully unprepared <laughs> to process the complexity of like 
their culture because once you see past that surface level stuff it's much different than it is here all right can so what were the uh, top three things that you liked about japan just on like a superficial level okay so for sure eating at eating in train stations and 7-eleven <laughs> i don't know if i would dare eat in a train station <laughs> in the united states <laughs> traveling by train is not like a part of our our fabric the fabric of our country like sure i guess if you live in the northeast you can take the acela I guess you would take regional trains, right? But you would never, I wouldn't eat in the BART station, you know? <laughs> but in Japan, you get to the, you get to the train station and it's like, it's a hub of, of like the city, right? And they have amazing restaurants in there. Well, and I've thought before, I was like, oh, I'm going to go visit Neil. I'll hop on the train. So I look on the Amtrak website and it's $350 to take a train from San Diego to San Francisco and it will take 23 hours. <laughs> the other okay so another thing i really like superficial thing i liked about japan was the coffee vending machines there's canned coffee in vending machines everywhere so for a coffee addict like me it was great and there's like different kinds right so you can get it with milk in it you can get it black you can get like even a hot can of coffee out of a vending machine it was incredible but even taking that up another level there was this one brand called Boss Coffee, and their like spokesperson was Tommy Lee Jones. That's like uh, uh, the Bill Murray movie by Sofia Coppola. Um, oh, Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, yeah, definitely. Think there's truth to that. Like having like a sort of like Western movie star come in and not even really know what they're selling. They just show up at the at the photo shoot. Maybe our podcast is a bit big enough that we can go. Uh, shill some whiskey or something in Japan. The last last thing in my in my top three superficial things I enjoyed about Japan is jazz cafes. American jazz, I think, at some point, like lost both its popularity and its like cultural impact. And um, but in Japan, like they still really, really, really love jazz. And like you can go to a cafe that's got really nice speakers and a and a turntable, and they'll be like playing really great classic jazz from you know the 50s and 60s and people just enjoy it um you know i don't know if this is just a thing that's like set up for tourists i don't think it is in tokyo especially like we went to a number of different cafes that were kind of set up like that so in any case i really enjoyed that part of it and it was just like a nice break you know to go to a country that appreciates the finer things what was your entry point to getting interested in, you know, books and literature of Japan and and authors? Can you talk about that a little bit? One of the first Japanese authors I read was Haruki Murakami, and I read One Q Eight Four, which is kind of a weird book. It's about a girl who's stuck in traffic, and the traffic guy, the the cabs like cab drivers like, yeah, you should get out of the cab and walk down those stairs, but be careful, the world might change. And so she does, and all of a sudden there's two moons, and there's a giant cult, and it's really crazy. That's a great synopsis of that book. I mean, he he really employs a lot of symbolism, and his characters are like very sort of circumspect and earnest, and it's it's really attractive. As you know, a lot of Western characters aren't like that, so it's it's a it's a kind of a a fun way to jump out into another culture for a little while. What's up with cats being like kind of a recurring? motif within his books do you do you know anything about that so the i think cats might be just sort of a japanese thing more than it, they are uh murakami uh studio ghibli has a movie called the cat returns which is based off another one of their movies but a girl saves a cat from being hit by a bus and then is kidnapped by cats from the cat kingdom <laughs> and it's going to be forced to, forced to marry the 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 prince of cats and then she's saved by 
the Baron, who's a dashing cat and accompanied by uh, a Peter Oboy- Peter Boyle cat. I, have, I haven't watched it in tra- I haven't watched it in Japanese, so all I know is the Peter Boyle cat is actually voiced by Peter Boyle. I like that. I like that. There's a a, a dashing cat. Is it does, does the word like a cat otai? Oh yeah, he's like decked out in a suit and he's got a top hat and a cane, and he talks like Carrie Elwes because he's voiced by Carrie Elwes. <laughs> so you mentioned Kurosawa as as another sort of cultural influence. Um, I know we talked about this a little bit before. I admitted to you that I have never watched a Kurosawa movie. You can. <laughs> Educate me a little bit on that. <laughs> sure. I mean, Curse always a great example of someone who's who's been influenced by Western culture and then also influenced Western Western culture. He made a movie of Dostoevsky's The Idiot. He made Ran, which is based on King Lear. Uh, he made Throne of Blood, which is based on Macbeth. Well, and then he made Yojimbo, which was adapted into A Fistful of Dollars. And he made Hidden Fortress, which was a huge influence on Star Wars. And he also made The Seven Samurai, which was the basis not only for The Magnificent Seven, but also for Pixar's A Bug's Life. Wait, really? Yes. <laughs> I, I cannot even comprehend how that is possible, but I trust you. The thing that actually made me get into Kurosawa is I kept hearing about Seven Samurai. So I watched that and I thought it was amazing. And then I started pursuing some of the other films. And, you know, I think the the samurai film in general, it's a, it's sort of a corollary to our Westerns. Kurosawa was really influenced by John Ford to the extent when you see pictures of him directing, he's wearing these big aviator sunglasses exactly like John Ford used to wear. He used a lot of the same actors in his movies, Toshiro Mifune, Takashi Shimura. He made one movie called Rashomon where it's about a a woman who's allegedly raped and you hear the story of what happened from like four different viewpoints and each one presents the situation totally different. And some she's the villain and some the husband's the villain and some the rapist is the villain. And so by the end of it, you don't really know what happened because there's these four different opposing stories. And uh, he wrote a, he made a movie called high and low, which was about a kid that gets kidnapped from a, a kid from a rich family who gets kidnapped. And the movies told from both the perspective of the kid's parents who are trying to get him back. And also from the kidnappers perspective and they're sort of, the stratification of society between the the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. I know you mentioned that you you read a lot of manga. I know a lot of kids that were a little bit younger than us were like heavily influenced by manga and anime. You know, really really got into and especially like things that were available on you know TV here, like Dragon Ball Z and things like that. I, I know nothing about this, so you can tell me a little bit about that and also the way in which sort of manga has influenced American culture. Recently, this year, I read Akira for the first time, which is a, a major title in manga and was adapted into a famous movie and one they've tried to adapt into an Americanized version several times and failed each time. Was that the one that we tried to have Scarlett Johansson? Oh, no, that was Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell, yeah. No, this one, they actually tried to cast Keanu Reeves as one of the leads, which doesn't really make sense since all the main characters in the book are kids. <laughs> you know, it takes place in a place called Neo-Tokyo, which is which built on the ashes of Tokyo, which was destroyed in a mysterious explosion like 20 years before. And it's about uh, these two kids, one of whom starts to develop superpowers for some reason. Uh, and it's basically what happens when, when one of the kids becomes so powerful he can't control himself and joins forces with akira who's another character who has superpowers and they're stopped by tetsuo who is sort of the protagonist of the book it's super violent there's lots of drugs 
they, they all do drugs for fun. Like they all have these mystery pills that they hate, but it's, it's, it was really enjoyable. It's like six volumes long. So it, it takes a while to get through, but, uh, and then also there's an author named Junji Ito and I've read some manga by him. He wrote a story where a horror story about spirals <laughs> and essentially people in this town started becoming obsessed with spirals to the point where they would like mutilate their bodies to make them turn into spirals and stuff. And it was really crazy. They just saw spirals like in nature or like, how did they get obsessed with spirals? Yeah. They just kind of saw spirals. It was something, it was like the town was being haunted and it was causing everybody to become obsessed with these spirals. And so, you know, it would start off, you would kind of, you know, be looking at your coffee and sort of get mesmerized by the spiral that would make you start it. And then eventually you're like throwing yourself into gears. So your body would be pulled apart into the shape of a spiral. (laughs) Well, he wrote a short story where there was a, uh, I think it's called the mystery of Amagara fault. And there's an earthquake that shoves a big piece of a big slab of earth up. And there's all these human shaped holes in it. And people see it on TV and they realize the hole is meant for them. It's in their shape. And they're like uncontrollably drawn to it. And they walk up to the hole and eventually will like slot themselves into the hole. And then it starts pulling them in and no one knows what happens to them after that. I won't spoil the end of the story, but it's, it's, it's gruesome and it's really creepy. So in preparation for this podcast, we, we decided we were going to watch two movies uh, separately, but together for our next podcast that comes out, that can be what we call it separately, but together starring Dave and Neil. But anyway, the first one that we watched was called house. It was made in 1977, and um, this was like one of the craziest movies I've ever seen. And I want I want you to to, to try to give a plot synopsis about this. <laughs> okay, so the movie starts off, and there's a girl whose dad, who his her mom had died eight years earlier, and her dad has started dating another woman. For some reason, eight years was not long enough to wait. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and she gets really mad and she's like, I'm not going on vacation with you. I'm going to go stay with my auntie who I haven't seen since I was a kid. And through a confluence of other events, her friends end up coming with her and they all have names like Kung Fu, Melody, Gorgeous, Mac, Prof. And they show up at this house and the aunt's like in a wheelchair uh, and creepy stuff start hap- starts happening. And um, as they start, they, they eventually start being killed in very, weird ways including one time where a girl gets shoved down a well and then one of the other girls brings her her head up which then attacks her and bites her in the butt (laughs) and then it turns into a watermelon but the 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 make the one of the things that makes the movie so crazy is they literally use like every camera effect that you can think of like from changing the color to making the picture go upside down to uh Force perspective. Uh, I mean, it's it's really kind of head numbing as you're watching it. It feels like a student film. It does. Like maybe like a high school student film. <laughs> well, at one point, one of the girls dis- decide figures out. I can't remember how she figures it out that the source of the ant- ant's power is the e- is the cat who's evil. So she goes to attack a portrait of the cat, which for some reason would take away the cat's power, and she gets eaten in half by a light fixture. But her disembodied uh, waist and legs, this is the Kung Fu girl, end up having being able to do a Kung Fu kick into the, the, into the portrait of the cat, which hurts it. But, but when you think disembodied, right, you're thinking like bloody, but really it's like they filmed 
her like from the bottom down and just literally took some scissors and cut the film. So it's like this straight line. It looks really weird. This film is not scary at all. No. <laughs> and in fact, it is like more silly than scary. There's like a a guy who's, I guess, a boyfriend of one of the characters who's supposed to come and pick her up from this house. And they, they think that he's going to like rescue them. But he's kind of like a bumbling idiot. And it's like a major subplot, him coming to the house. Like he keeps, keeps cutting to him. At the like climax, he just randomly turns into a pile of bananas. I hope I'm not giving anything away there by talking about the banana subplot. Yeah, come on, Neil. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I think the craziest thing about this is, so first of all, this is a movie that's part of the Criterion Collection. And, and you know, the Criterion Collection is is supposed to be like the best movies ever made, right? I guess. So, okay, this, sure. I'll accept that it's part of the Criterion Collection. But there's like a little explainer video about, that goes sort of deeper into the thematic elements of this movie on on the Criterion Collection website. This movie in some ways is like a, an, is it an allegory about cultural resentment that stems from uh, World War II and sort of the atrocities that uh, Japan underwent? And if you watch the movie and you didn't know that, I think it would be kind of hard to pull that thread out. It did, after the fact, give me a lot more sort of a respect for the filmmaking, sort of a desire to kind of really be attuned to that message. And I guess, I guess part of going deeper into that, I, I think the resentment stems from the fact that a whole generation of Japanese people felt like their youth was kind of like ripped away from them um, in the most you know horrific way possible. And the younger generation basically had no understanding of that. Well, I feel like a lot of the Japanese art of the 20th century was really influenced by World War II, you know, from things like House or Godzilla, which was, you know, pretty plainly an allegory for the the atomic bomb. And and then even like Murakami, you know, he, a lot of his books are about dealing with the atrocities from the Japanese side. So the Rape and Nanking, things like that. So yeah, not to get too heavy. I feel like most of American art is still about World War II most of American culture is somehow still tied to that as well. Such a transformational thing for everybody in the world and to this day. Yeah, I would argue that the, the Vietnam War, it's sort of World War II is viewed through the lens of the Vietnam War because people tend to see the World War II is like the last, is like the good war and then Vietnam War is a lot muddier. Um, so switching gears, let's talk about the second movie we watched, which was Tampopo. Which was amazing. Part of the Criterion Collection. I don't know where else it's streaming at. Definitely not on Netflix. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, this movie was made in the 80s, probably 1985, and is really just an incredible movie in so many ways. It's, it's kind of like a, a, a genreless movie that that is omnivorous in its interests, and, and it's kind of better for that. You know, I read a couple descriptions of it. One called it uh, a ramen western. <laughs> that's a pretty good... That's a pretty good one shot synopsis of a another called it a uh, referred to the main characters as as a a gang of culinary ronin <laughs> which is also an incredible description um but the the long and the short of it is that there's a a woman who runs a restaurant and and these these men kind of come together to help her make it better and you know one of them's a uh, an ex pediatrician or an ex obgyn and one and two of them are truck drivers and then one of them is a limo driver. So they're not like <laughs> ramen chefs themselves. They're just regular dudes. And there's this there's this scene where where they they go to consult like these um, itinerant people. They're all gourmet connoisseurs of food, and they they have this like deep knowledge of like where to eat, how to cook. 
Um, and it, it's interesting because it kind of flips that the the sort of assumptions uh, on its on its head a little bit. I think one one other thing that's great about it is like the little asides. They have these these like little not even subplots, but just like asides where they go and show this other story of some people in the city it has nothing to do with the main plot. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Like at one point, there's a a family who's attending to the the mom of the family who's on her deathbed, and they're encouraging the doctor to make her feel better where it turns out they just wanted to make one last meal. <laughs> so they forced her to go in the kitchen and make a meal, a meal for them with her dying breath. And then she promptly brings it out and dies. Mom would want it that way. Yeah. And, and the dad's yelling at the kids. He's like, eat the food. You have to eat it before it goes cold. They're all like sobbing about the. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's interesting. I think this movie like has kind of be, become a classic almost in spite of, of a lot of the idiosyncrasies of it partially i think because ramen has got really popular you know my first my first because i for a long time what i knew of japanese food was ramen and then i saw the movie ponyo which is a another ghibli movie and in the movie they give ramen to the little the little mermaid girl fish girl that's ponyo and she just absolutely loves it and it looks amazing in the movie and after i saw that i was like okay i need to go have some ramen and i did and it was great you're gonna have ramen after this conversation i wish that would be awesome although i think i'm having salmon for dinner so that's cool what other type of culinary ronin could we make movies about how about the like the taco trio i want to i want to watch a show about someone who owns like a cereal bar but just has all terrible cereals and then a team of people come in to help them just pick better cereals this is captain crunch <laughs> maybe more boring than it sounded to me before i said that i, I would watch your movie I'll write a I'll write a manga of it. You write a graphic novel about it. <laughs> Look, it's about it's about kids discovering cereal for the first time. It's a cereal bar for kids. Here's my pitch. All right, it's the future. We live in a dystopia dystopia, and the world has forgotten about cereal. <laughs> but there's one guy, Mikey, who remembers that he used to eat cereal when he was young, and uh, he comes into town he rolls into town and he he's you know the man with no name the anti-hero and he comes in and introduces the town back to cereal and they rebel but which which cereal would it be though what would be the what would be the the representational cereal for all cereals oh, man um i think he would have to start with something uh something mild so maybe he comes in with like all three different types of checks <laughs> and then he mixes them up and, and you can show him like mixing them up in an artful way. And then people add a little bit of sugar and some, some almond milk. And then they eat the checks and, and it just sets them free. Sort of a combination of chocolate and uh, the road, the road. <laughs> what if like all he had was Captain Crunch and people ate it and they were like, like bleeding out of the mouth. Cause their mouths are not, trained to be able to handle such fucked up food or, or, or they have they have it and he uh they're like we want some more so he goes back and all he has is oops all crunch berries <laughs> <laughs> and he comes back he's like all i have is oops all crunch berries and they're like what the hell is wrong with you and then they like string him up and then they realize that crunch berries are, are still y yummy <laughs> but if he he it was the guy who like talked about it for years right and then, like, he comes back finally, and all he has is, like, Wheaties. 
and everyone's just like let, totally let down by it. And he's like, no, 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 okay, okay, you don't like Wheaties. D- don't worry, I'll bring back something better. And then they like don't let him back in the town. And there's some crazy guy who lives outside of town and lives off grape nuts. And people are like, <laughs> why is he eating that? I feel like grape nuts, though, there are people who like really love grape nuts. Yeah, I actually do like grape nuts, but I'm not going to say they're like a delicious food. It's like eating gravel with a little bit of taste. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like when you first try beer and you're like, who, what, why? And then like eventually you're like beer. Yeah, that's the same thing. Like you can kind of get into anything, right? So, like So segue, I remember me, you, Adam <laughs> and Jason, we were up in the Vacaville Hills and we went and got like a random six uh six pack of beer and we got McTarnahan's IPA and none, none oh, of us God. none of us were had any experience with IPA that was before it was good though also <laughs> well, like in fairness to IPAs like it took a while for people to really figure that out well so we each had we and I haven't actually had a McTarnahan I've had plenty of other IPAs but I haven't had a McTarnahan since then so who knows if it's <laughs> actually good but uh I think we each drank one and then we left the rest of it on the side of the road. Like <laughs> it's like half a twelve pack on the side of the road of just unopened McCarnahan's. I remember my twenty first birthday. We we ate or we ate. We drank Tall Boys of Foster's, and I think we thought that Foster's was like a sophisticated foreign beer, and we were all very proud of ourselves for that. <laughs> but just to say, like, if you're drinking Foster's and then you have an IPA and you've never had an IPA before, yeah, it's going to be a rough entry. Well, and Australia has some amazing beer. Um, you know, especially Tasmania. I remember when I, when, I get, when I went out to Australia and I don't remember the names of the beers, sadly. <laughs> but uh, my wife's uncles were like, oh, try this. It's a Tassie beer. This was really good. But nobody really wanted to drink Foster's. That was like the Bud Light of Australia. It's kind of true of so many places where where the, the most popular beers are the, the worst beers. Um, and then you you really gotta you really gotta have like a local or someone like guide you to. Well, t- taking it back to Japan, I remember the first time I had Sapporo. I expected something like mystical and you know foreign and rich, and it was just really a crappy lager. <laughs> I'm gonna say this about all uh, lagers. I think it's most. I think it's true for most lagers, especially lagers where they're imported and they sit on a shelf for a long time, and it, you know it's not fresh. You know, you're not really getting it like on draft like and you're not experiencing it the way that a beer should be experienced so in fairness to lager like even i actually think like a lot of lagers are are fine especially in the circumstance where that's or like a pilsner right where it calls for that like if it's hot out you know you don't want to drink an ipa sapporo has its time and place right (laughs) well i mean we we all know that a good ipa should make it feel like you just got punched in the face exactly I don't know how much you're into like what's going on with local breweries, but like, especially in Berkeley, like everywhere. So I live in Berkeley and like, there's a ton of like local breweries and I try to only buy directly from them, especially during the pandemic. Cause I, I don't want them to close, but like, you can't get, you can't just get like a little bit of beer anymore. You can buy cans of it, but they're all tall boys or you can get a growler or whatever. But if you get a growler, you got to drink it right away. So like, if you're getting beer these days locally, you're getting trashed. My wife like does not want to ever drink a tall boy because it's a lot of beer, especially if it's like an IPA that's like eight to ten <laughs> percent. I mean, an, an eight to ten percent beer tall boy would be some serious drinking right there. Like, there's no casual drinking beer anymore. Like, if you're if you're gonna crack one open, you're in you're in for the night. Remember when we <laughs> used to go out and drink like all the time? Yeah, I miss it. Too. <laughs> And I would, I would get so drunk, I would pass out in front of the club or something. Oh, those days are going to come back around when, when COVID's over because we're going to need a night like that. I'm going to take that $350 train down to San Diego. <laughs> and then we're going to go out and I'm going to 
get get you drunk and leave you on the beach in La Jolla or something. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I have like I know all these people at work who who uh, <laughs> who live in La Jolla, so I'd wake up and I'm like stumbling through their front yard. <laughs> Just break into their house. You like make yourself a cup of coffee. Hey Stan, sorry about the breaking and entering, but you know I was really hungover. Oh man, <laughs> don't do it again, Garrison. It's okay, I'm your boss. I'm good for it. Let, let's wrap it up. What's our next episode going to be on, Dave? So I was I was inspired to talk about cowboys because uh, of actually from Tampopo, from the main character. Uh, what was his name? Goro. Let's retroactively apologize for all pronunciation in this episode, which is most definitely incorrect. Yeah, yeah I agree. <laughs> but uh, he, he's an amazing character, and he always wears a hat. And, you know, you know he's a cowboy because he only he doesn't even take it off when he takes a bath. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about cowboys and all their their kitschy glory. That's uh, I can't wait. I really can't wait, and especially because we're going to probably record it right after this. <laughs> Just a peek behind the curtain of the podcast industry. Pay no attention to the cowboy behind the horse. All right. So let's uh, let's wrap it up. I'm Tiny French Pancakes. And thank you for joining us on Planet of the Ramens. It was enjoyable speaking to you. And now I want some ramen.